2: My history can beat up your politics wherever you get podcasts.
1: Thanks for downloading episode number 113 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast.
1: So it's been a while since we talked with you guys, um, although we did get the Lee and the Low Country members episode out last weekend, but some of you have been waiting a while for this new Shiloh episode. And probably a lot of you know by now that we kind of got thrown off schedule with the podcast because I flew home to Pennsylvania for a while after my dad suffered a massive heart attack. And it's really an amazing story since he had it rather inconveniently while he was traveling about four hours away from our home in western Pennsylvania But very conveniently, he had it just a few miles away from one of the top cardiac hospitals in the country, uh, in eastern PA. And even then, uh, there at Allentown, they almost lost him, but they did get him stabilized and fixed up. And after being there a while, he was able to go home, and I was able to come back to Colorado, Uh, but... That all just kind of threw Tracy and me for a loop as far as life and work. And so podcasting took a back seat for a bit. But now we're back.
0: Like a bad penny.
1: Like a bad penny. Although I'm not sure many people actually use pennies anymore, do they? I think they're going the way of the wooden nickel. Kids today probably don't even know what a wooden nickel is. Anyway, um... We, and I especially, just wanted to say thank you for your understanding and patience uh, for the delay with this episode, and thank you to those of you who let us know your thoughts and prayers. were with my dad and our family, and he is doing well. In fact, now that he's been back home, and he's on medication, of course, and his diet has changed too, but um, he says he actually feels better than before the heart attack. Since this problem had obviously been building up for a while with the blockages and whatnot, and now that that's actually been addressed, he feels great. So that's pretty amazing. And anyway, that's just a bit of an update for those of you who might like to know. And now... Hey, you. (laughs) That's your cue. And now...
0: Back to our regularly scheduled programming.
1: Oh, man. It's been a while. Yes. Yes. Back to our regularly scheduled programming, the Battle of Shiloh, Part the Third.
0: All right, so by the end of the last show, as y'all will recall, we had Ulysses S. Grant's Federal Army congregated in southern Tennessee around the vicinity of Pittsburgh Landing on the Tennessee River just north of the Mississippi border while Don Carlos Buell's Union Army was marching overland from Nashville to join up with Grant.
1: Meanwhile, PGT Beauregard and Albert Sidney Johnston had concentrated all available Confederate forces about 23 miles south of Pittsburgh Landing, around the vital rail hub of Corinth, Mississippi. At the end of the last episode, we had talked about the flawed Confederate attack order written up by Beauregard's chief of staff, Thomas Jordan, and how the plan that Jordan cooked up differed significantly from what Sidney Johnston had in mind.
0: Albert Sidney Johnston apparently intended that the rebel army's three main corps elements, led by Polk, Bragg, and Hardy, would deploy side by side across the front, and when the assault went in, the strongest push would be made by the corps nearest the river. That attack would force the Yankees away from the Tennessee so that they would be trapped in a cul-de-sac in a pocket formed by the swampy bottomland of Snake Creek and Owl Creek. Sidney Johnston's plan was a good one, but as we mentioned last time, unfortunately for the Confederates, the order that Jordan drew up for the attack bore no relation whatsoever to Johnston's plan.
1: Instead of deploying the three corps side by side and keeping the fourth, Breckinridge's, in reserve, Jordan's plan called for Hardee's corps to form a line of battle stretching across the entire length of the battlefield. Behind it, Bragg's corps would do the same, followed by Polk's. Breckinridge's reserve corps would bring up the rear. So Jordan stacked up the four corps like the layers of a cake. In his book, Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland, Stephen Woodworth explains the problem with Jordan's plan. Woodworth writes, As soon as the fight grew hot enough to cause the first line to halt, which would occur when the Federals first offered serious resistance, the second and then the third Confederate lines would move up and join the fight, with their divisions, brigades, regiments, and even companies intermingled with those of the other lines. The Corps would cease to exist as maneuver units and the Confederate Army would become a collection of brigades and regiments, end quote.
0: In other words, since Jordan's plan stacked up the rebel corps one behind the other like the layers of a cake, once the battle got underway, it wouldn't be long before the different layers of the cake became all smashed up together against the Union line, and in the resulting confusion, the formations would lose their effectiveness as coherent formations on the battlefield."
1: Even though we've already gone over all this before, we wanted to go over it again because it's been a while since the last episode, but also because this is exactly what will happen at Shiloh on the first day of the battle. And Jordan has been justly criticized for his attack orders, but in the end, it was Albert Sidney Johnston who was an overall command, and so the blame ultimately rests on his shoulders for allowing his army to go into a decisive battle in a faulty formation.
0: But before Sidney Johnston's army could go into battle in its faulty formation, it would have to actually get to the neighborhood of the Yankee army camp just to the north. 23 road miles separated the Confederate encampments around Corinth from the federal tents pitched around Pittsburgh Landing, and confusion, rain, mud, delays, and more confusion marked the rebel march across those 23 miles.
1: As might be expected given the raw inexperience of Sidney Johnston's Army of the Mississippi, the approach march to Pittsburgh Landing was a chaotic affair. Torrential rains, muddy roads, and poor staff work turned the march into a miserable, frustrating, tiring, start-and-stop affair for the Confederate troops involved. Brigades, divisions, even whole corps found themselves on the wrong roads and paths and in the way of other brigades, divisions, and corps which needed to pass. The plan had been for the rebel army to be on the march from Corinth early on the morning of Friday, April 4th, so as to attack the Yankees at sunrise on Saturday the 5th. But besides a foul-up with the marching order out of Corinth, an all-night downpour turned the roads into quagmires, which not only made marching miserable for the infantry, but caused wagons and artillery pieces to mire, axle-deep in the mud.
0: Many of the Confederate soldiers had already been weakened by the poor conditions at the camps in the swampy countryside around Corinth. In fact, over 7,600 of them were so sick they had to be left behind in the encampments when the army set out for Pittsburg Landing. But many of those who were fit enough to set out on the march were soon exhausted by the exposure to rain and wind and by being called upon to help teamsters and cannoneers wrestle wagons and artillery pieces out of the mud. Before setting out, the rebels had been ordered to prepare rations, which were supposed to last them several days, but many of the men gobbled them up immediately, so they would end up going into battle on Sunday, hungry as well as exhausted. Lieutenant Edwin H. Reynolds of the 5th Tennessee recalled that, quote, The roads became so muddy as to be almost impassable. The country was heavily wooded and unsuited to travel, and the men were generally unused to marching. The officers in the main knew nothing of campaigning, and the progress was slow and wearisome."
1: In the book, Shiloh and the Western Campaign of 1862, O. Edward Cunningham summarizes the frustrating and difficult approach march to Pittsburgh landing, Quote, a year later in the war, the Confederate Army could have made such a concentration and march in one day, but in April 1862, the Southerners simply lacked the necessary experience. The Army was to move along two narrow country roads toward Pittsburgh Landing, the Ridge and Monterey Roads. Both of those roads were connected together by other country roads in several places before they converged five miles from the landing. The Confederates were to concentrate at Mickey's farmhouse, which lay about five miles from Shiloh Church. It was a fairly simple plan of approach, but everything went wrong. Inexperienced officers and faulty staff work ruined any possibility of sticking to the original schedule. The roads were already muddy from rains during the past night, but on Friday night, as the Confederate army tried to settle down, the heavens literally seemed to burst open. Most of the soldiers were quickly soaked to the bone by the cold rain. The next morning, Saturday, conditions along the line of March were chaotic. A heavy drizzle continued to discomfort the cold, exhausted soldiers, most of whom had not been able to get any sleep. The infantry stumbled along in the mud. Finally, about midday, the rain stopped, giving the weary men a little respite."
0: But in spite of the mud, disorder, and nagging delays, by the evening of Saturday, April 5th, most of the 40,000-man Confederate Army was finally in position to assault the Yankee camp on Sunday morning. On the very eve of the attack, however, PGT Beauregard got cold feet. Beauregard, Sidney Johnston's second-in-command, expressed doubts about the wisdom of carrying out the attack. Most of the rebel soldiers were out or nearly out of food, and worst of all, Beauregard feared the element of surprise had been lost, since for two days the lead elements of the Confederate Army had been skirmishing with Federal pickets and patrols. Having been forewarned by this activity, the enemy, Beauregard thought, must be, quote, entrenched to the eyes, end quote, and ready and waiting for the impending Confederate assault.
1: On Saturday evening, Sidney Johnston, already deeply frustrated by the delays his army had experienced making the approach march, Johnston rode into Beauregard's bivouac that evening to confer with the second-in-command. There he found an informal Council of War already in progress, with Beauregard, Braxton Bragg, and Leonidas Polk debating the wisdom of canceling the attack. Soon, John C. Breckinridge joined the meeting. Sidney Johnston was was shocked to discover that Beauregard was advocating calling off the offensive and withdrawing back to Corinth. As Tracy mentioned, besides being concerned about the logistical situation, Beauregard felt that the element of surprise had surely been compromised since the slow march and disrupted timetable meant that on Friday and Saturday, federal pickets and patrols had already been engaged in skirmishing with some of the advanced Confederate units. Bragg agreed that it would be folly to continue with the attack now, but Sidney Johnston disagreed, as did Polk. Johnston was adamant that the attack would proceed the next morning as planned. He pointed out that the latest reports indicated the Yankees seemed to still be completely unaware that the Confederate Army was massed nearby. After reasserting his intention that the assault begin at daylight and bringing the discussion to an end, As Sidney Johnston walked away, he stated to one of his staff officers, quote, I would fight them if they were a million. They can present no greater front between those two creeks than we can, and the more men they crowd in there, the worse we can make it for them. End quote.
0: That Saturday night on the eve of battle, the weary, mud-covered Southern soldiers slept on their arms, and because of their proximity to the enemy, were ordered to build no fires, even though the night was chilly. And so the men settled down to get what rest they could, but many of them, excited by thoughts of the great battle that was certain to occur in the morning, found it impossible to sleep. The war had been going on for a year now, and fully 85% of the Confederate soldiers in Sidney Johnston's army had still never heard a shot fired in anger, and they were eager to see the elephant. The battle tomorrow represented an opportunity they had long waited little did they know however for what they were wishing the shocking ferocity of the fighting over the next two days would test the mettle of the soldiers on both sides would leave many widows orphans and mothers to weep and for the men who survived shiloh it would foreshadow the long and bloody days and years ahead
2: Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't
1: you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this?
2: Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan, and we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast,
1: where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same.
2: But, you know, in a fun way.
1: Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages.
2: And we interview top scholars in the field.
1: So whether you're a devout
2: believer. Or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time.
1: We think you're going to love the Data
2: Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I'd like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
1: On that Saturday night, on the eve of battle, for his part, Ulysses S. Grant had no idea he faced impending attack. He and his principal subordinates believed the Confederates were entrenching at Corinth and that Albert Sidney Johnston did not have the resolve nor the capability to attack them in the open field. Both C.F. Smith and then Grant misinterpreted the motivation behind the rebel concentration at Corinth. They viewed the deployment as having been made for the defense of the important rail hub when actually Johnston and Beauregard had designed their concentration at Corinth with the intention of striking an offensive blow at the Yankees.
0: Besides his own overconfidence, Grant was still acting under Halleck's strict orders that he was not to be drawn into a general engagement with the rebels until Buell's army had joined him and Halleck himself had arrived to personally take command of the advance on Corinth. As a result of those orders, federal patrols hadn't scouted very far beyond the army encampments, and even when they had, the resulting skirmishing was thought to be not with the advancing rebel army, but merely with Confederate patrols that were also out conducting routine reconnaissance of the area between Corinth and Pittsburgh landing.
1: But neither Grant nor Sherman who was in de facto command of the Federal encampments around Pittsburgh Landing, while Grant remained nine miles downriver at Savannah, but neither Grant nor Sherman expected a Confederate attack, and that's seen in the fact that no one bothered to order the Federal soldiers to fortify their camps in any way. That no entrenchments had been thrown up to protect the campsites proved to be a major embarrassment to Grant after the battle. And before the battle, such negligence seemed astounding to the scouting rebels. In his book, Shiloh, the battle that changed the civil war, Larry J. Daniel writes that besides the fact that the overly complacent federals obviously cited their encampments for a convenience rather than defense, quote, the most critical mistake was the lack of fortifications for which neither Sherman nor Grant can escape culpability. C.F. Smith had counseled against the use of entrenchments, arguing that it would take away the men's fighting edge. Even after the battle, Sherman insisted that the construction of field fortifications would have shown weakness. Grant did direct McPherson to lay out a fortified line, but the engineer reported that it would have to be placed in the rear of the line of encampments. The fact is, Grant simply did not anticipate that the enemy would be so audacious as to leave a fortified base. Underestimation of the enemy, neglect, fear of losing the aggressive touch, failure to learn from his Fort Donelson experience, all played a role in this grave blunder." End quote.
0: As Rich mentioned, to William Tecumseh Sherman had gone the role of unofficial camp commander, and as such, he had been entrusted with the organization and defense of the federal encampments around Pittsburgh Landing. While C.F. Smith was still in command of the army, Sherman had fully endorsed the spot as a base from which to launch the future federal offensive against Corinth. The Tennessee River to the east and two creeks to the north and west formed an open-ended triangle that sherman viewed as quote, an admirable camping-ground the spot was not chosen for its defensive value foremost in sherman's mind was the establishment of a base for offensive operations he later wrote quote, i acted on the supposition that we were an invading army we could have rendered this position impregnable in one night but we did not do it to have erected fortification would have been evidence of weakness and would have invited an attack, end quote.
1: Well, that's some rather creative ex post facto reasoning, but the fact is that since the Confederates would attack from the south, that is from the open end of the triangle formed by the terrain, and since no field fortifications had been constructed by the five divisions of Federals encamped inland from Pittsburgh Landing, what Sherman had done was inadvertently placed the Union Army in a natural trap. If, as Sidney Johnston planned, the rebels could shove the enemy left away from the river and corner the Yankees against the creeks, where they would be in disorder and cut off from the landing, then the destruction of Grant's army was a very real possibility.
0: But as we've already said, neither C.F. Smith nor Grant nor Sherman expected a Confederate attack. Despite the increased skirmishing, Sherman expressed his confidence about the situation in a message to Grant on Saturday. Sherman said, quote, the enemy is saucy, but got the worst of it yesterday and will not press our pickets far. I do not apprehend anything like an attack on our position. End quote. And Grant, for his part, wrote to Halleck saying, quote, I have scarcely the faintest idea of an attack being made upon us, but will be prepared should such a thing take place."
1: But despite his pledge of preparedness, and despite knowing the enemy was only a bit over twenty miles away, Grant made no provisions for meeting a Confederate attack. By neglecting to order that field fortifications be constructed, and by failing, perhaps due to Halleck's orders, to ensure that there was adequate outposting and active patrolling that would have unmasked the Rebel advance long before it neared Pittsburgh landing, Grant was caught completely by surprise when the Confederates attacked on Sunday morning.
0: Even as Sherman and Grant were sending those fateful messages, the Confederate Army was positioning itself for the attack that would take place the next morning. Hardy's corps was in the forefront. Bragg's corps went into line a thousand yards behind Hardy. Behind Bragg was Polk's corps. To the rear of Polk, Breckinridge's three reserve brigades eventually filed into place. Thus situated, Sidney Johnston's army was within a mile of the Union camps.
1: By nightfall on the 5th, many Union soldiers and officers in the forward camps had grown nervous and apprehensive. For the past couple of days, pickets and patrols had encountered rebel cavalry, and even heard the sounds of drums and bugles, and reports were passed up the line, but most went unheeded. Sherman explained away the increase in enemy activity as simple reconnaissances. During his tenure in command of Union forces in Kentucky, east of the Cumberland, the previous fall, the thought of how the rebels might take advantage of the weakness and disorganization of his own forces had filled him with such anxiety that he had tended to overestimate the enemy threat. His nervous state of apprehension back then had led to his removal from command and to a hostile newspaper labeling him insane. Now, at Pittsburgh Landing, Even as information of increased enemy activity reached him, Sherman had apparently decided, based on his previous negative experience, to discount the possibility that a powerful rebel army was lurking just beyond his picket lines.
0: But by Saturday afternoon, sighting of Confederates were common along the federal picket lines, and word of enemy soldiers in the woods just beyond the lines was common knowledge, at least in the Yankees' front-line camps sergeant edward gordon whose regiment the 57th ohio a part of sherman's division received his orders for picket duty that afternoon and when he and his squad took over their post about three quarters of a mile out from shiloh church they asked the men they were relieving if they had seen any rebels lots of them, was the reply Not far
1: away, the men of the 53rd Ohio of Sherman's division were drilling in an open clearing called Ray Field when reports reached their colonel, Jesse Appler, that not only rebel cavalry, but also a strong skirmish line had been encountered nearby. Appler ordered the 53rd into line of battle and sent a messenger racing to Sherman's headquarters with the news. But Sherman had been growing increasingly irritated as disturbing reports continued to arrive as, at his headquarters, and besides that, he'd already formed a low opinion of the inexperienced Appler, and so he sent the messenger back with a contemptuous response. Quote, General Sherman says, Take your damned regiment back to Ohio. There's no enemy nearer than Corinth.
0: Even as Sherman played down the importance of the stream of troubling information reaching him, the commander of the other front-line Federal Division, Benjamin Prentiss, pondered the meaning of the news that enemy soldiers were skulking nearby in the woods. That afternoon, while reviewing some of his troops, Prentiss himself had seen some butternut cavalry lurking in a far tree line, and so as a precaution, he decided to reinforce his division's picket line that night. The troops that drew the duty were four companies of the 16th Wisconsin. All Apprentice's troops were green, but the Wisconsin boys were greener than most, having only been issued their first cartridges that afternoon.
1: Elsewhere along the line, in spite of Sherman's scornful dismissal of his concerns, Jesse Appler had posted a special 16-man picket near the south end of Ray Field. He wanted that sector watched but he wasn't eager for more of Sherman's ridicule. Another Union officer who got little sleep that night was Colonel Everett Peabody, commander of one of Prentice's brigades. In Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland, Stephen Woodworth explains that, quote, Around midnight, Major James E. Powell of the 25th Missouri, the officer in charge of the brigade's picket line that evening, informed Peabody that he had taken a detachment of the picket detail forward some distance through the woods, looking for a squad of cavalry someone thought he had glimpsed out in front. They did not find the cavalry, but they did hear the sounds of many troops moving somewhere farther out. Peabody decided to act. The 31-year-old Harvard graduate and successful railroad engineer had experienced combat the year before while serving in Missouri, If there was a rebel force lurking in his brigade's front, he wanted to know about it. So he ordered Powell to take three companies of his 25th Missouri and two from the 12th Michigan, about 400 men in all, and probe forward to determine whether any significant number of Confederates was in fact present. The patrol set out from the brigade's camps at about 3 a.m. Peabody did not inform Prentice of his action. End quote.
0: And just a footnote, but the combat Peabody had experienced in Missouri was at the Siege of Lexington at the Battle of the Hemp Bales, which we talked about in episode number 68.
1: Exactly. And then Powell was an experienced soldier. Born in England, he'd served as an enlisted man in the 9th U.S. Infantry during the Mexican-American War. In the 1850s, he'd obtained a commission in the 1st U.S. Infantry serving on the Texas frontier. And after duty in the Indian Territory earlier in the Civil War, the 42-year-old Powell was detached from duty with the regular army in order to serve as a major of the Volunteer 25th Missouri. He'd held that position for just two weeks at the time that he led the patrol forward from Peabody's camps.
0: Powell's patrol advanced cautiously. The moon had set by this time, so the soldiers in blue from Missouri and Michigan stumbled through the inky darkness. About three-quarters of a mile south of Shiloh Church, they bumped into that picket post of the 57th Ohio, consisting of Sergeant Gordon and his men, who were the farthest outpost of the slumbering Federal Army. After that, Powell crossed the Corinth Road on a course a little south of West. In the darkness about 150 yards beyond the road, the patrol emerged into a cotton field belonging to a farmer named Fraley. Powell's men hadn't yet reached the middle of the field when some shadowy figures on horseback became visible in front of them. The horsemen fired several shots at the advancing Yankees and then retreated. Still advancing, Powell's patrol encountered a second cluster of rebel cavalry vedettes and exchanged shots with them. These horsemen also retreated.
1: As the Federals then approached the far side of the 40-acre field, they were startled when a heavy volley of musketry crashed out at them from just ahead. Powell had run into a battalion of Mississippians, led by Major Aaron B. Hardcastle. A long line of muscle flashes in the darkness marked the Mississippians' position along a fence line. Just behind Hardcastle's men was Wood's brigade of Hardee's Corps. As Powell's men stood their ground and returned the incoming fire, it was about 5 a.m. on Sunday morning, April 6, 1862. The rebel army had at long last been discovered, and the Battle of Shiloh was underway.
0: Before dawn, Albert Sidney Johnston and his staff had gathered around a small fire for a breakfast of coffee and crackers. Several other officers soon assembled at the spot, including Bragg, Hardy, and Beauregard, and the discussion from the previous night was taken up once again. As the wisdom of going ahead with the attack continued, however, Sidney Johnston was, quote, mainly a listener, end quote, according to Isaac Ulmer of the General's Escort.
1: Then the rattle of musketry was heard from up the Corinth Road. This was Powell's patrol in Hardcastle's Mississippians up in Fraley Field. As the firing increased in intensity, Johnston cut the debate off, declaring, The battle was open, gentlemen, and is too late to change our dispositions. Johnston then mounted his Magnificent Bay thoroughbred, Fire Eater, and turning to his staff, said, Tonight we will water our horses in the Tennessee River. As he rode off, he paused long enough to speak to Randall Gibson, a friend of his son, William. Sidney Johnston told Gibson, Randall, I never see you, but I think of William. I hope you may get through safely this day, but we must win a victory.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is the West Point Atlas of War, the Civil War, which was created under the direction of Vincent J. Esposito.
1: It's been a while since we recommended our list Mm -hmm. of Civil War atlases. And it was way back in episode 38, in fact. But especially here with the Battle of Shiloh, which is a series of complex, uh, confusing actions Tracy and I want to once again urge you guys to pick up a Civil War Atlas so that you can follow along with the action we're describing here on the podcast. And there are a number of good Civil War Atlases out there, but our favorite happens to be this one, this West Point Atlas, which was originally published in 1959 as part of a two volume set. However, this edition we have is a single volume, large format, soft cover book, And we actually picked ours up quite a while ago at, I think, the bargain table in a Barnes & Noble. Um, But like I said, it's turned out to be our favorite Civil War atlas, so whatever we paid for it, uh, it was definitely worth it. Anyway, it's the West Point Atlas of War, the Civil War, and the chief editor was Brigadier General Vincent J. Esposito.
0: Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations by going to the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org, and clicking on the spot at the top of the page where it says, Appropriately Enough, Book Recommendations.
1: You can also head over to the website to sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. For the low, low price of $5 a month, you'll have access to the extra members episodes that Tracy and I are doing. And we have quite a few new members to thank this time like David, Clara, and Dan,
0: and Terry, Gerald, Scott, and Steve,
1: and Jean, Joshua, Marcello, and Charles. So a big thank you to all of you. It's good to have you on board.
0: Thanks, y'all.
1: And then at the website, besides finding the book recommendations and signing up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade, you can also find some information about us, uh, see what we look like, find out how to contact us, find links to iTunes, to our Facebook page, and to our Twitter feed. So all of that is at www.civilwarpodcast.org.
0: And as we wrap things up for this show, we'll remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of each and every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water. And we use it with the permission of Spirit with Music. And then last but not least, Rich and I want to thank all of y'all for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, A History Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time when we continue with the story of the Battle of Shiloh. But until then, take care.
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye.